There's a story in the Zen tradition of a young man showing up at a remote monastery door after a very disillusioning and um, disappointing uh, life. And he showed up at the monastery door and he said to the abbot, you know, I'm really sick and tired of this conditions in my life and I want to get the benefit of what you have to offer here as quickly as possible. And uh, have you got anything to offer? And the abbot said, uh, yeah, I think we've got something that can help you. And he said, what have, what have you done with your life? And the young fellow said, well, I haven't done much. I've grown up in a very wealthy family and uh, I haven't had to do anything except I've learned how to play chess. So the abbot thought for a minute, he said, okay, come in, come in. And um, he sent an attendant for one of the elder monks in the monastery. And the elder monk showed up and the abbot said to him, you have taken a vow of obedience to me and now I want you to play a game of chess with this young man. It's all he knows how to do. And if you lose, I'm going to cut off your head. <laughs> and he said to the young man, he said, uh, you're going to play a game of chess with this man, this elder monk, and if you lose, I'm going to cut off your head. And they both looked at this abbot, and they could see that he wasn't fooling. So they set up the board, and they began to play. And in the early moves of the game, the young fellow got a measure of the elder monk who looked like he'd been playing chess all his life. And he was a worthy opponent. And the young man began to fear for his life and play for it. And in the initial moves it looked like he was not doing so good, but then soon into the game the elder monk made a good move, but not the best move. And the young man saw his chance and began to set up the offense that was going to win the game and through successive moves did indeed begin to get the upper hand. And the thought of what he was doing came to him and he took a glance at the elder monk and he saw there this wise and intelligent being who had spent a life of sincere effort and austerity and just had really done a noble practice throughout his life and he felt this wave of compassion come over him and he started or continued to play the game in such a way that he let his defense crumble and his offense weaken and the elder monk took advantage of it. And as the game was proceeding to its inevitable close, the abbot tipped over the board and scattered the pieces and said, there's no winning and losing in this game. He turned to the young man and he said, you have gained today everything you need, concentration and compassion. Now, if you stay with us for a couple of months in practice, you'll achieve what you wish. 
And of course, in all good stories like this, he did. I tell this story not because chess is so important, but because the thought of our own death can be such a powerful support for our practice. It's no secret that we'll all die one day. We all know that. But we don't often use that fact as a support to our practice. Rather often we feel a vague sense of the outer limit of our life and hope that we can get done everything we want to do before it approaches. On a longer retreat like this, six weeks or three months, inevitably we lose sight of what we're doing here. We lose perspective on why we're here. And we can find ourselves taking the conditions here for granted, demanding more even, uh, bewildered as to why should I bother to sit with this pain? Why should I continue to walk? Why should I, why should I bother with this? Whether it's pain or discomfort, boredom or laziness, we lose the support for our practice. And in the end, we fail to gain the liberation from their numbing influence. And when we fall back into the comfortable delusion of sleep, avoidance, denial. It's significant that one of the heavenly messengers, one of the four heavenly messengers of the Bodhisattva, was a corpse seeing a being that had died and what was left. And it wasn't just that the Buddha saw a corpse or that the Bodhisattva saw a corpse, but that he saw deeply into the condition of his life and our life that in the end we all die. And taking that fact in deeply and feeling its effect on the present moment so motivated him so, so stirred him up, so caused this urgent need to get on with the practice that was going to free him from the suffering attendant in human life. It's not easy to break our fascination with the everyday activities of our life. It is extraordinarily difficult, as we have all discovered. The fascination of the bits and pieces, the comings and goings of our life, is tenacious. And it takes something 
as dramatic, as stark as a corpse or a consideration of our own death to, to begin to loosen the grip, to put things in their proper perspective. The Buddha taught mindfulness of death or reflecting on one's own death as a skillful means support to support practice. Kiko, a Japanese monk or at least a haiku writer, wrote, that which blossoms falls, the way of all flesh in this world of flowers. This time of year, fall, is the perfect time for undertaking a retreat like this. The whole mood of nature, the whole movement of nature, the transition from summer to fall, the dropping of the changing of the leaves, the dropping of the leaves, the cooling down of the environment, things coming to an end, trees becoming naked, birds heading south, acorns falling, chestnuts falling. We see all around us the end, the fact of change, the radical change, the transformation called death. And it's a time when we quite naturally go into ourself, under the layers, not only of clothing, but under the layers of our mind, in our heart, to look, to come to a inner place. It's difficult, it's not easy. Maybe we all prefer to be engaged in the outer world in the light, in the active. And certainly our culture conditions us to prefer that. When we turn within, it sometimes looks bleak, alone, dark, somber, unfamiliar. It's where we find the pain of our loss our unhappiness, our grief, disappointments, failure, shame. Where we come in contact with the other side of our life, that which we don't show so boldly. as we approach our inner life, that which is below the surface, that which is hidden in the dark, we approach our own death, the death of who we think we are, who we have been, 
what we'd hoped to be. And for all of us, the death is the ultimate unknown. In spite of how many near-death experiences we've had or heard about, or how compassionately we can be with others dying, death remains for us, or our death remains for us, a vast mystery, which, when it comes, in others or in ourself is often wrapped in ritual, fear, avoidance. Our challenge is to stay awake, to stay open to the fact of death, to make the fact of death the reality, now, while we're alive and not to fall into easy rationalization or what happens to everyone or resignation what can I do about it or relief at least it's the end of suffering or bewilderment why how what is it When we stay open to the fact that we don't know and we won't know for sure, then we can begin to explore all that gets in the way of living in the present moment, of being alive. If we are to understand life we must understand birth and death. Now is the time to look. Not to wait until death is upon us or we get the diagnosis of some terminal condition. But now when we have the health, the energy, the clarity of mind, now is the time to consider carefully this fact of life. Today, something around 300,000 people died. It happens every day. Fathers, mothers, children, some died happy, some were really sad. Some knew their death was coming and some had no idea. Some died by being alone. Some died in the midst of others. Some were ready and some were surprised. There's a great variety of elaborate explanations, reasons, beliefs, opinions about death. What actually happens? Where do we go? 
The Christians have their heaven, their hell. The Hindus have their reincarnation. Indigenous cultures have their beliefs. Maybe we've personalized our own synthesis of whatever makes us feel comfortable. But in the end, we don't really know. The Buddha had an understanding of death. And we might ask ourselves, is it useful? Could it be helpful? Why should I bother? Sometimes when we're exposed to another way of understanding death, we may expose our own limited understanding. And it may reveal an intuitive knowledge that we have felt, yet not articulated. And it sometimes can offer relief from the fearful alternative. And in that, support our practice. Buddha's understanding of death is that death is just a temporary end to a temporary phenomena. There's not the annihilation of a being, neither is there a reincarnation of this being, but rather that death in one place is the occurrence for birth in another. Relatively speaking, a being dies, and another relative being is born. And this can occur in a number of ways, the coming to an end of the lifespan. When you reach the limit of human life, it's over. Or maybe the karmic force that propelled us into this life is exhausted. or the intervention of a very powerful, destructive karma may cut off life. But when the life force is cut off for whatever reason, the Buddha understood that consciousness continues. Not here, but in another location. But just as in every moment of our life here, every moment of our practice here is conditioned in part by the moment that precedes it, so too was his understanding that the last moment of this life conditions the first moment of another. And it's said that at the moment of death, one of three things occurs. That there appears in the mind something like a memory of some karmic act that we have performed. Or that there appears in the mind some symbol or some object used in some, some action that we've taken. Or there appears a sign of our destiny, 
the place we're going. Now this shouldn't be any surprise to us. We see this every moment we're paying attention. We see the past coming up in the present again and again and again. And the past is nothing more than, nothing less than previous karma. And so we see the past, karmic action, conditioning this moment. Or we recall the places, the people, the things that we have seen, done, been, and we react, we respond. Or we plan the future. We imagine, we fantasize how we will be or how we want it to be. We create our destiny. We plan it out and then we follow through. We've imagined the end of the retreat. If we're not careful, we'll live it out just like that. We have imagined so many futures for ourselves. We will get the opportunity to live them out. Until and unless we let go. We see them and we let go. But when they appear, it said, when these images, these karmas, these actions appear at the time of death, it appears not as a memory, not as a fantasy, but as if it is really happening at that time. And we react. And that reaction is the beginning of a new life. We do it moment to moment, fantasy after fantasy. They all appear to be taking place here, in this body, in this mind, in this room. The significant or the distinctive knowledge of the Buddha's understanding was that the relinking consciousness or the first moment of that next life, that next, next existence, being conditioned by the last moment of the previous existence is what carries the life force for that whole existence, for that whole life. So the life force of this life, conditioned by our last life. In Buddhist circles, or at least in Burma, and probably in all Buddhist cultures, there is tremendous importance put on the last moment of life. And in fact, some understand that their whole practice and training of meditation, of renunciation, living an ethical life, is really to prepare for that. The mechanics of how it happens, not so important. The belief in how it happens, 
not so important. Because we can actually see and get a clear reflection of it in our practice here. Seeing one moment condition the next. The memory arises and along with it the anger. Or the plan arises and along with it the excitement. And this has been going on since we got here. This life, I mean. If it happens to be true, if we allow, if we can open to the possibility that the Buddha's understanding, there may be something to it, then our focus should really be to look at what is coming up, conditioning the next moment. And what do we see? We come on retreat, we've been busy with our lives, come on retreat, we start to pay attention, settle down, and what do we see? Up comes in our mind the most, um, let's say, the, the, the dramatic events of our life. Those things that we have done with the most energy and the most intensity and the most intention come back to visit again. The weightiest things we've done, the weighty karma, so to speak, have their day. They're at the head of the list, so to speak. When we have seen them, when we have somehow been able to gather what they offer, see it and let go of it, we're still left with the innumerable events of the day, those things that are happening now, again and again, that we have to pay attention to. It's not just living in the past, living in the future, it's living in the present. It's said that at the moment of death, weighty karma comes to, any weighty karma that we have, comes to mind and will condition the next life. Weighty karma in this instance is, of course, uh, in the negative or in the unwholesome side, it's if we've been involved in killing, stealing, that's pretty heavy karma. A lot of intention, a lot of energy involved in that. And so it comes up, sure to condition next life. On the wholesome side, if we have developed insight, if we've developed deep absorptions, concentration, it takes a tremendous amount of energy, as you know, a lot of intention, then that's sure to be the conditioning agent, conditioning moment of next life. But if we haven't any weighty karma, then proximate karma that which is happening in the moment may be the agent, the action that conditions next life. When I was in Burma, there was one woman, a Burmese woman, that was meditating, and she was sitting in the meditation hall one morning and died. Now, normally if we 
came into the hall and we were sitting in the morning and one of us happened to die, we would probably get pretty excited and you know, we were, could be shocking. But her family was ecstatic, happy that she was involved in meditation at the time of her death, believing it to be one of the better activities, maybe the best activities she could be engaged in when it came her time to die. And another um, incident I'm familiar with when I was in Burma, there was a, one monk that used to come to the monastery where I stayed, and he only showed up very infrequently. He had another monastery out of Rangoon. And I'd heard just a couple of weeks after he left one time that he was giving a Dharma talk, and at the end of it he died. And this was seen to be maybe the most auspicious situation energetically, intentionally, being in a place where there is non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, powerful karma. Or if there's not weighty karma or proximate karma, then there's habitual karma, that which we are familiar with, that which we have done over and over and over again most likely to arise. Not necessarily do we have strong intention or a lot of energy. It's just something, it's just the groove of the mind repeating itself. We see here in our practice the power of our habits and how extraordinarily difficult it is to wake up to them and to put them aside, to let them go, to find another way of responding. And last, and certainly not least, if these don't condition, if these karmas don't condition the next moment, then any karma, any action, anything that we have done once, somewhere in this vast past, wandering in samsara, can come to the mind and condition the next life. We see this too in our practice. You know, the incessant, irrelevant memories, images, fantasies, they're just endlessly rolling past the mind. Any one of them might be the last. We hope so. <laughs> but I mean it to me that it may be the moment that conditions the next life. The images we put in our mind come out. The actions and the karma that we generate, they're not left behind. They don't enter a void of oblivion. 
but they imprint on our mind and they come up. We see them again and again until we learn how to let them go, not claim them as me, as mine, or who I am. If we can appreciate this fact, it can help guide us to make wise decisions, how to spend our time. So now ask yourself, what thought, what image, what action, what behavior do you want to appear in your last moment? All we take with us is our conditioning. So then ask yourself, well, what do I want to leave behind? Do I want to leave my fear, my family, my possessions? Do I want to leave a life of pain, fear, confusion, resentment, unfinished business? Or do I want to be unencumbered, have brought closure to my relationships, put an end to my fear. When we ask ourselves these simple but hard questions, it can motivate us powerfully to move our life in an appropriate direction. It seems funny, strange in a way, to ask ourselves, how do I want to die? The answer is really in asking ourselves, how do I want to live? Because the way we live is the way we'll die. If we really want to know what it's like to die, we have to pay attention to how we live. Bringing death to mind, calling death up, reflecting on our death in this way offers a powerful protection to our practice. It protects us from being lazy, from being bored, from taking it for granted, because none of us know really when it's going to be our turn. Many years ago, when I was a long-term yogi here, for about ten months, I was jolted out of one of my dreamlike reveries with this very vivid image of a hooded or a shrouded uh, skull that said very clearly to me, or I thought it did, 
the moment of your death is the most important moment of your life. And it didn't cause me fear or anxiety so much as it was a relief to hear articulated what I knew somewhere deep within myself. But it takes a lot of care, a lot of self-compassion to cut through the layers of attachment, of fear, of confusion, to get to what we know to be true. Don Juan, as you know, was a powerful teacher to Carlos Castaneda. And he talked about death being an advisor. And he said, death is your eternal companion. It is the hunter, and it is always to your left at an arm's length. It has always been watching you, and it always will until the day it taps you. How can you feel so important when you know death is stalking you? The thing to do when you're impatient is to turn to your left and ask advice from your death. An immense amount of pettiness is dropped if your death makes a gesture to you, or if you catch a glimpse of it, or if you just have the feeling that your companion is there watching you. The fact of your death is never pressed far enough. It is the only wise advisor that you have. And whenever you feel that everything is going wrong and you're about to be annihilated, turn to your death and ask if that is so. Your death will tell you that you're wrong that nothing really matters outside its touch. Your death will tell you, I haven't touched you yet. To ask death's advice is to drop the cursed pettiness that belongs to men and women that live their lives as if death will never tap them. such a careful reflection, remembering of this fact of life, isn't meant to be a kind of morbid, depressing, uh, gruesome consideration, but rather a way of arousing an urgency an anxiety, a, a healthy anxiety about the way we're living. It takes death from a place of fear, denial, anxiety, into acknowledgement and awareness. The Buddha taught Maranasati, or mindfulness of death, because it does lead to support for practice. And traditionally, the reflection is an acknowledgement 
that death is absolutely certain. There's no avoiding it. There is no ageless body. There is no timeless mind. There's no magic, and there's no religion, and there's no eternal life. Death is a fact. At one level, we all know that. But it's difficult to let it in deeply so that it touches us where it can make a difference in our life. One of the elders at the time of the Buddha wrote about his understanding of death. He said, the world is assailed by death and smothered in old age, pierced with the arrow of craving and always obscured by desires. The world is assailed by death and besieged by old age, eternally beaten, with no relief, like a thief beneath the rod. Old age, illness, and death approach, like three great masses of fire. No strength can resist them, no speed can outrun them. Spend your days without confusion, whether few or many remain, for every night that slips away, there is that much less of life left. Whether walking or standing, sitting or lying down, your final night is drawing near. You have no time to be lazy. Sometimes easy to not take it very seriously, to kind of have a very light uh, chuckle about it. But it's just an indication of how difficult it is to let in that fact. Or as Joseph says, time is only running out. We don't have any more of it. It's just less each moment to do what it is that has to be done. Sometimes it arouses a fear of the future. It's a healthy fear. A fear that kind of guides us to live our life more carefully, more considerately, more sincerely. The second reflection is to reflect that the time of our death is uncertain. Life is uncertain. And we've all had a rather recent, dramatic example of that with Princess Diana. Who ever imagined? No one. And yet it's true. It happens. 
We don't have to plan for our death. In fact, the time of our death is completely unknown to most of us. Mabutso, who died in 1874, said, Moon in a barrel, you never know just when the bottom will fall out. <laughs> the other side of unexpected death. We can't plan, we can't know in advance. We don't get a chance to pick. I noticed for myself throughout the events around Princess Diana's death. And I was, I, I wasn't, I, I didn't have much connection with her. I didn't have much of a fascination with her. She was just another person in the headlines. That it took a couple of weeks before I actually could drop into the fact of her death and just the, the, the surprise element of it even though it was going on for day in and day out. It was a couple of weeks before I could actually feel in myself that I took in that fact. It's hard to let go. It's really hard to let go of the way we think it is, or the way we think it should be. But now we have the time we have the energy, we have the health to seriously consider our own death. If we wait until we're on our deathbed, we don't have the energy, or we don't have the interest. Now is the time. We may be too busy later. There was an elder monk at the time of the Buddha, Mahasiva, who was a, quite a well-known teacher of the Buddha's teachings at the time of the Buddha. And one of his students, who became an arhat, fully enlightened, saw that Mahasiva was not yet awakened. And so he went to him and he asked him to, to teach him uh, a stanza some of the Buddha's teaching. But Mahasiva said, oh, he was too busy. He had so many students he had to attend to that he was too busy to teach this one student. So the student waited for a day, 24 hours or so. And then he said to Mahasiva, he says, if you are so busy now, how will you find time to die? And of course, Mahasiva actually heard what this enlightened being was pointing to. Stopped his teaching, got on with practice, spent 30 years, and also attained some awakening. If we're so busy now, when are we ever going to have time to die? Our death will catch us, and we won't, we won't even know it. And we'll get a chance to live another life, unknowing. The third reflection on, skillful reflection on death, is to reflect that at death, everything is relinquished. We take nothing.
with us. We don't take what we own, what we believe, what we've had, our memories, our fantasies, our plans, relationships, fame, glory, disrepute. We don't take anything with us. What are we collecting now? What are we holding on to now? What are we gathering now? That in the end is only got to be let go of. When we leave this life, we take nothing. We go unburdened, empty, unencumbered. Ajahn Chah's advice to a dying woman was, so let go, put everything down, everything except the knowing. Don't be fooled if visions and sounds Likes and dislikes arise in your mind during meditation. Put them all down. Don't think a lot. Just think, this is the way things are. Right now, nobody can help you. There is nothing your family or possessions can do for you. All that can help you now is the correct awareness. So don't waver. Let go. Inevitably, we too must die. If we can live consciously with that fact, with that awareness of our own death, it brings a vitality, a strength of mind, uh, an urgency to our life. We don't have to wait for the diagnosis. We've all got it. We are going to die. When we acknowledge the presence of death in this balanced way, it leads to tranquility. It leads to awareness. It leads to energy. Our individual death may remain an unknown, but the fact of death is known. Milarepa said, Being afraid of death, I escaped the mountains. Now, having realized the nature of the mind, even if death comes, I'm not worried. Our mindfulness practice here is really our rehearsal. Rehearsing, letting go. Letting go of everything, especially who we think we are. That sense of ourself that comes up again and again. And to see that it's not so. We are not limited by any 
sense of self. It takes this moment to moment careful attention to see what we're hanging on to and then to begin to let go. Mindfulness is the way to the deathless. Unmindfulness is the way to death. Those who are mindful do not die. Those who are not mindful are as if already dead. It sounds like a contradiction. But really, when we see through our attachments, when we see through our identifications, when we can let go of our knowledge, our opinions, our sense of self, that is the death. That is the conscious death that precedes the passing of this body. What really matters is not what we believe, what we have, or what we've done, or what we've achieved. But what really matters is what we let go of. This is an opportunity to let go of everything. The conditions are ideal. As ideal as they can exist. To let go of everything that we become aware of. A spiritual warrior is only human, a humble human, says Don Juan. And when one's time on earth is up and one feels the tap of death on the left shoulder, one's spirit, which is always ready, flies to the place of his or her predilection and there the warrior dances to his or her death. Every warrior has a place to die, <clears throat> soaked with unforgettable memories where powerful events have left their mark, where one has witnessed the marvels and the secrets, and where one has stored their personal power. We can't change the design of our death but our impeccable spirit, which has stored this power after stupendous hardships, can certainly hold death for a moment, long enough to let one rejoice for the last time in recalling their power. We may say that this is a gesture with which death has with those who have an impeccable spirit, and thus you will dance to your death telling of your struggles, your battles you have won, and those that you've lost. And you'll tell of your joys and your bewilderments upon encountering personal power. And you'll tell about the secrets and the marvels you have stored. And your death will have to sit there and watch you. The dying sun will glow on you without burning. The wind will be soft and mellow and your spot will tremble. And as you reach the end of your dance and you look to the sun, you'll never see it again in waking or in dreaming. And then your death will point to the south, to the vastness.
So let's sit for a minute. Let the words fade away. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.